I believe Xi Jinping's master plan for China is to let huge chunks of the population die. He's emulating the United States. It's very clear that he's modeling the future of the Chinese industry off of the 1960s, 1970s era United States. So we've come six conversations now into this new channel. How are you feeling? Feeling pretty good. Yeah? Yeah, I like this time with you. I actually really like this time too. I was never, I would have never guessed that yeah. doing a podcast together would somehow be like quality relationship time. Yeah, it's connecting time. We actually don't have children interrupting us every five minutes during these 45 minutes that we talk. Well, it's more than that too. Like, I get it. That <laughs> Maybe you... for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I will never understand the mom complaints about kids. The mom plaints. The mom. Mom plaints about children. They're but they're like universal. Yeah. Moms everywhere in all languages all like make snarky comedic jokes <laughs> yeah. about motherhood. Like dads, we're like we don't really want to complain about our kids. Mm. But moms are like, Psh, I pushed them out of my vagina. I'm gonna make fun of them all day. <laughs> I'm not trying to make fun of them. I'm just I'm definitely airing my grievances though. Yeah. Because you can't really air your grievances to your children, right? They don't they don't understand. It's not appropriate anyways. <laughs> they don't listen. They don't listen. <laughs> they don't really care. There's they don't no, get it. There's no right? yeah, they're not gonna give yeah. you any love. I make these little mental notes that I'm like, when she's thirty, I'm gonna bring this back up. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I agree. This has turned into some really quality time for us mm -hmm. because we used to have smart conversations all the time. Yeah. We used to talk about world events and spy operations and places mm -hmm. we wanted to travel and life. What did you, you called them dreams and hopes and dreams. Hopes and dreams. You've hopes always and called dreams them. conversations. We used to talk about that. Yeah. Then we started talking about diapers and. Yeah. Now we talk about dinner plans. I know. What's the dinner? And I don't mean dinner plans like a date night dinner. <laughs> Nothing exciting. It's literally <laughs> like, what will the kids eat? What's in the fridge? What are we going to eat? Yeah. And it turns into this kind of cycle of life. Mm -hmm. But you are, you're introverted. Yeah. And you've always uh, kind of struggled with anxiety. Mm -hmm. And now you're, you're, you used to be a covert CIA officer. Yeah. Now you're in front of a camera. You're in front of multiple cameras behind a mic, mm -hmm. live on YouTube, mm -hmm. talking about how you make fun of your kids. Yeah, I, <laughs> I just don't think about what's out there. <laughs> I think about you sitting in front of me. Yeah. And that's the trick? And that's the trick. I guess that's a pretty good trick. So you've also been, we've joked, we've joked on camera and off camera mm -hmm. about how you have a filter. Can you talk about what your filter is? <laughs> Uh, so I was, my formative years were in Japan, a very polite society. And then even when we moved back to the United States, we practice a Japanese uh, form of sect of Buddhism is what we follow. Uh, so the Japanese culture is very ingrained in my family. Mm. So we all have always had a filter on what we say because it's important to be polite. It's important to, uh, I would say be thoughtful, but really it's seem thoughtful. And so I just have created this very strong filter over the last 40 years that, you know, I always think before I say something. And then even then, it's not just giving myself space so I don't blurt out something I'll regret. It, there's another filter beyond that where I'm like, oh, this is what I really want to say. But 
this is what I'm going to say because I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to be rude. I want them to save face, right? So it's interesting because you talk about a filter, but what you're really talking about is just it's a lie. Mm. <laughs> I know it's a you lie. like to call it that. That's what it is. Like when you when you have a thought, yeah, and then you think to yourself, I can't say that thought. <laughs> Instead, I must say this other thought. Then you're lying about what you're actually thinking. And I love that this came from Japan. I love that. Th I love that you're pr you're introducing this uh -huh. as like your filter from Japanese society, mm. because the Japanese absolutely have a reputation of being polite and mm -hmm. proper and mm -hmm. you know uh, organized. Mm -hmm. They're a bunch of biased, lying <laughs> assholes sometimes, <laughs> and you know it's true. They're racist. Only mm. Japanese people count in the eyes of Japanese, mm. right? Everybody else is a second-class citizen, and that's why they're running into their own issues in their country, right? That's why they have a, a declining population, and they don't allow immigration. And mm. you have to jump through twelve bureaucratic hoops if you're going to be if you're going to get Japanese residency. Yeah, it's like the polar opposite of the United States, which is hilarious considering mm -hmm. how close we are as allies. Right. Yeah. Everybody looks at them and thinks they're a democracy and they're this and they're that and they're yeah. a first world like leader. They actually actually are racist. It's well, codified in law, their racism. Mm. Right. And it's just amazing to me. So and you're right, they have this this veil of propriety, mm -hmm. but they drink all night, they smoke all the time, they're sexual freaks. They have a high suicide rate. They have a high suicide mm. rate because the pressure that's on every Japanese adolescent mm -hmm. to exceed the expectations of their parents is so high that they just, yeah. death is easier for a lot of them, right? You can yeah. see how that culture begot samurais and how that culture begot mm. kamikaze pilots. You can see it in mm. like there. Look at that said, I still love Japan. Yeah. Amazing place. Fantastic people to be around. As long as you accept that whoever's looking at you mm. is lying to you. What's your dad <laughs> call it? Oh, the Grenfuck. Yeah. <laughs> Explain to us the Joel Bustamante description of the Japanese Grenfuck. No, it's it's he actually applies that term to Chinese because the Japanese aren't the only culture True. where it's important to save face, right? There are multiple cultures in the world where it's important to save face. You don't want to say something that's going to embarrass somebody or embarrass you. Mm -hmm. And so you say something else with a smile. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so my dad calls it the grin fuck where like as they are stabbing you in the back doing something, they're smiling and nodding in and your face. in your face and, and you know, placating you. So yeah. Um, yeah, I do think it's interesting that there, you know, these cultures out there, I, I still have to say, I prefer the cultures that lie to my face. <laughs> <laughs> I would rather have you be polite than... But lie. <laughs> but lie, right? Because there's an understanding that they are being polite. Mm. You know, like if you understand the culture, you know that they are being polite. So... You just have to figure out how to navigate those things. I would much rather have that than have somebody be just straight up rude to my face. Because I think the problem, you know, it's, I'm reading all these Star Trek books now, and it's not like we're not like Vulcans who say what we mean in a logical manner. And so 
it it makes sense, right? Like I'm being honest with you and it doesn't hurt your feelings because it's the logical thing to say and do. And you are a logical driven person too. Right. You, right? You're Vulcan right. to Vulcan. Right, you're Vulcan to Vulcan, right? You're, you're, so like my logic, your logic, they meet. Nobody gets upset. That's not how it works in the human world, right? Humans, when they say something, there's usually an emotion behind it. So if somebody says something rude to you, there's usually some kind of nasty emotion behind it as well that's being emanated, right? That mm. energy is being pushed towards you. At least if somebody is polite to me, I don't have to deal with all that negative energy. <laughs> as an introvert, it's really like powerful, the energy yeah. that people send to you. So, you know, I would rather be in a, a society where I have to try to read between the lines and very diplomatically try to get to understand what that person is really saying. That sounds like a painful society. <laughs> How much energy is wasted? <laughs> Seriously, yeah. If I'm going to put a vote in the Vulcan court, then I'm putting a vote in the Vulcan court right now. Because to, you know, it's it's interesting. We're talking introvert, extrovert. Because mm -hmm. I lean on the extrovert side. I certainly have introvert tendencies. Mm. You also have extrovert tendencies. Yeah. But my point is just, if someone's going to lie to my face, it's so awkward because you can see them lying to your face. Yeah. And you know that they don't like. I mean, whew, like a Japanese person who's giving you the last piece of food, giving you their whole plate of food, mm -hmm. and they're like, "I want you to have this." You're like, "You don't want me to have that." Right. Like this is your culture, your society, your social pressure, your mm -hmm. norms. It's a beautiful thing, mm -hmm. but just I, you actually want to eat this, so so you eat it. So then you push it back to them, and then they push it back to you, and then you push it back to them, and then you. <laughs> oh my god! You gosh. find that exhausting, huh? It's. <laughs> There's nothing beautiful about that. It's just two people not eating. What's the point of that, right? What's the point That's of that? Better when... than somebody being like, "Sorry about your luck. There's nothing left." It could because then maybe eventually you'll get to like, why don't we split the meal and then you both get to eat? Ah, is that the goal? So why don't we just start with that? That's a good question. <laughs> society isn't quite there yet <laughs> that's that's the middle ground we're trying to get to and it's really interesting too because you come from a venezuelan family mm -hmm. so your venezuelan father yeah. married an american woman mm -hmm. and then they together immigrated with you to japan yeah where they then all voluntarily adopted this japanese culture yeah. and like i said i i love so many elements about japanese culture yeah. the thing that i don't love is when we bring back mm. a part of that culture that doesn't fit in our culture. Mm. And inside American culture, the filter, it just doesn't work very well. Because Americans don't, Americans don't like filters. We don't understand them. We don't appreciate them. Not yeah. like the Japanese, it's not Vulcan to Vulcan here. Right, and I think that's the, the key is it's not understood. So an American will take you at face value yeah. for what you're saying, they'll never, They'll never, uh, you know, come to the conclusion that you are saying something you don't mean and that they should guess that and alter their actions <laughs> based on what you just said. Right. They'll just be like, oh, you're, you don't you don't want to come to the party. No problem. Yeah. We'll see, see you ya. later. <laughs> like, no, I do want to come to the party. I yeah. just can't say that in front of my friend. Yeah. No, you just. You, yeah, yeah, I agree. We don't understand filters. You even say that you don't understand nuance. It's difficult. It's gotten yeah. us in so many, it's gotten me in so much trouble in our relationship <laughs> oh, yeah. that you don't understand nuance. Yeah. And it's funny because I don't think I use very much nuance. I'm pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. 
But I still do find that there's a there's an American culture for nuance. That's true. Mm-hmm. We are, and that's probably our legalistic background. We're like, oh, you can't hold me accountable yeah. for, you know, I said yeah. late, but what I meant was just not on time. Oh yeah, it's like when you see laws written with really broad language and you're like, what does that even mean? Like I can be arrested for... Yeah, what you exactly know. is possession? Yeah. Is possession, I'm holding it, or it's within yeah. proximity of me, or it's on my property? Like, what exactly yeah. is possession? Or there was uh, a, a case recently, um, uh, an injunction place, I think it was Kentucky, someplace um, in America where they were passing a law to be able to criminally charge librarians for having harmful books in the children's section what is a harmful book wow. who is the judge right that's very subjective yeah. so um yeah we definitely do in an american culture it's it's different and i don't know you know maybe it it's not i wouldn't i don't know that i would say it's cultural the way that it is in like east asian cultures mm. only because we're so young i mean it's, well, it's cultural fair. here but we don't have anywhere near the, the legacy mm. that you see coming out of east asia i mean china's been around five thousand years japan's been around as long at least. Um, yeah. So we've got 270 years of experience, I think, here in the United States. <laughs> I do forget we're so young. <laughs> we're so young. I remember when you and I, we took a trip to, uh, were we in Kyoto or were we in Tokyo, where they showed us that that farmhouse that was powered by water? That was... It was a grindhouse. It was grinding yes. cornmeal or something. That was at the base of Mount Fuji. There's a village there. And the lady that was with us, mm-hmm. we both, I think I looked at her. You look, it was mind-boggling to me. I think I looked at it and I was like, wow, what a beautiful old house. And she mm-hmm. looked at us and she was like, yeah, that's older than the United States. Yeah, 400 years old. And I was like... <laughs> Just the house, yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. Mind-blowing. It gives you a sense of how young our culture mm-hmm. really is. Now... You know, just across the water, just across the the ocean, I guess it's still considered an ocean that spans between Japan and China. The sea. The sea. Mm. Just across the sea is China. Mm-hmm. And China has so many similar cultural traits, right? The grin fuck, like you said. Even though if you've been to that area of the world, like China, Japan, South Korea, there's like animosity between those three countries that are all very close Mm -hmm. but their cultures are in many ways very similar Um, but talk about a place that's running into some real like generational issues they've been around for a long time Mm -hmm. they know how to sort themselves out in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. but now they're running into some challenges and we've been really reading about it in headlines recently yeah i mean fertility challenges population challenges employment challenges real estate challenges Mm -hmm. uh and i can't help but feel like they're all like tied together, right? And, and yeah. from uh, from my experience, as a married entrepreneur with mm-hmm. children who graduated college, I mean, you and I started our life together comparatively late. Mm-hmm. We married at 30, yeah. started dating at 27. Mm-hmm. My mom was in her second marriage mm-hmm. by the time she was 25. Yeah, done having kids. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just... It's wild to think that we started our first marriage five years after my mom started her second marriage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, we met when I was 27 when I met you and my mom had already been married for several years and had me when she was 27. So now China as a country that's kind of modernizing. Mm -hmm. Now granted, the China that we talk about really only started in 1949. 
Yes, which I think is really interesting talking about a young country. The yeah. Chinese culture and the Chinese people mm -hmm. are ancient, yeah. but the Chinese Communist Party is very new and it is also an experiment, yeah. right? That's and it's true. been fascinating to watch this experiment unfold, to watch their uh, you know, their child policy change over the years as they try to adjust for the consequences basically of how they manage their people. Right. I mean, they had the cultural revolution mm -hmm. where they wiped out the huge parts of their own culture. Yeah. And then they had the one child policy where they just intentionally stunted birth rates. Yeah. Having the side effect of people choosing male children over female children yep. more often, yep. which whether that was anticipated or not. Created a, created a dearth a, of females. Right, a dearth of males, right? So more dearth. <laughs> An absence of? An absence of. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I don't have my dictionary. You're the reader, today. too. Come on. I know like uh, four fancy words. <laughs> well, that's, that's one of them. That's one of them that I don't know. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for clarifying. But yeah, so they ended up with more, more males than females. And now they're in this quandary yeah. of, you know, <laughs> that, that adds to people marrying later, yeah. people choosing to have less children, people choosing career over, yeah. you know, and then if, if it's important racially for them to marry within the, the you know, with, you know, Chinese, marrying Chinese, yeah, if that's important to them. Oh, right? yeah, that's true, too, within the same right. ethnic culture. Right, because in theory, that type of mismatch between you know how many eligible males and females yeah. there are wouldn't matter so much if it didn't matter who you married but my because there are probably plenty of females in the world but if it matters for that you're marrying mm. a chinese female that's a big deal yeah you know it's really interesting too is they have like it's causing compounding challenges mm -hmm. because you've got like you were saying you've got an absence of females an abundance of males yeah. who are in their core earning years yeah right? 28 to 35, right? Mm -hmm. And they all pushed off marriage. So now you've got an older population, older than what they're used to, right? 32-year-olds yeah. mm -hmm. that don't have many wife, many female options mm -hmm. to marry if you're going to have a, married, a marital union that creates offspring. Right. And you've got career on top of it in the middle of like an unemployment crisis. Right. In a culture that has no problem mm -hmm. abusing its workforce because it doesn't have the social laws that we have here in the United States. Right. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so uh, so in, in China there there's high unemployment, but the way that the employers have been treating that is to treat their employees as if there's high unemployment, you're lucky to have a job. Mm -hmm. And so now they make them work this 996 where it's 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. And these people who are working these 996 schedules, they have no time and yeah. no energy to date or try to find a spouse, even if they wanted to. Mm. And so all of the all of the you know courtships are being pushed to later in life. Also in Chinese culture, it's important for a man to have some kind of investment to have own a house, own a car. Mm. The housing market's been really tight in China, so it's difficult to do those things on top of that. Yeah. And then if 
you have these, and then um, the Chinese laws right now are that even though they've been expanding their child policy, so now they're trying to encourage people, you know, you're you're welcome to have up to three kids. You're no, welcome. You're yeah. welcome to have up to three kids. Nobody's That's nobody's crazy. taking them up on the offer yeah. because everybody's working too hard. The women have a, a lot of men to choose from, and they're kind of choosing their career first. And then the current uh, Chinese laws make it so that uh, IVF and egg freezing are only available to married women. So if you're a 27-year-old woman and you're like, you know what, I'm probably not going to get married for a while and I'm probably going to be you know, not married, not having kids until my late 30s. You can't freeze your eggs, hmm. right? You have to wait until you're married. What if you don't get married until you're 38, right? By then, the, the point is moot, right? Like. Yeah. And and so it, it's creating you know this un this this insecure future for the Chinese country for China because what will they do? Their population is aging, their their the baby the birth rate is falling, the marriage rate is falling. What does that say for their future? Yeah, you know what's funny is you know to put it another way, it's a it's a chain reaction. Yeah. People are getting married later. Because they're getting married later, they, they're not having large families mm -hmm. because they're getting married later. Yeah. And as they choose to get married later and have smaller families later, mm -hmm. it also means that the investment into cars and homes is also being pushed back until they have enough money to be yeah. able to afford a house or home or a house or a car. Yeah. But in order to afford a house or a car, they have to have a job. And the jobs are making them work this mm -hmm. 12 or this 996, nine, nine, right? Nine days, 12 hours a day, six days a week, yeah. which prevents them from even meeting a spouse, which mm -hmm. prevents them from getting married, which prevents them from having kids. Yeah. And on and inside this, uh, this construct, mm -hmm. What you do have is aging generations still dying, yes, and you have younger generations not being produced. Mm -hmm. So it's fascinating. It also makes me understand a little bit more why Xi Jinping is so focused on creating a tech hub mm. in China, because it's just like Obama. If you remember Barack Obama in 2008 when he took the presidency here in the United States, mm -hmm. do you remember what his big focus was? I just remember the Asia pivot. The Asia pivot was important because we yes. were at CIA <laughs> during was, the Asia that's pivot. That's what I was doing. I was pivoting. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Barack Obama's platform was all about bringing uh, high-tech production jobs back to the United States. Manufacturing jobs stay abroad. High-tech production should be in the United States. He wanted to make and continue to invest in the United States being a producer of high technology because high-tech jobs are all high-dollar jobs. Those high dollar jobs can be taken by fewer people. Fewer mm -hmm. people create a larger impact on the economy and everything goes on and on, right? Mm -hmm. Xi Jinping has been making this focus towards a high tech sector in China, making mm -hmm. them the tech exporter for at least the Eastern Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. In doing so, he would essentially make it so that they could handle a giant generational population bust hmm. because they would need a fraction of the number of people they have right now as long as they're educated and working in high tech jobs. So you think that Xi Jinping's focus actually is a part of that is planning for a smaller population? Correct. I think he wants a smaller population. Interesting. It's the same thing that we have here in the United States. And again, I'm going to speak very frankly and probably in a way that makes a lot of people upset. 
the number of productive adults in the United States is not many. Mm. There's a huge number of people out there that they're just pissing away their time and their money. They're not ambitious, they're not trying, they're not educated, they're living off of social welfare, right? They're, mm. they're having more children just so they can get more welfare. There are children without parents, there are homes that are lived in with, by, by squatters. Like we live in a country where a huge portion of our country is held afloat by the social welfare programs that we have, which is why there's so much, you know, just polarization in our country. Because some people are like, I don't want my tax dollars to go to floating these people that don't do anything. Mm. But then hidden among this group of people who don't do anything are very legitimate people yeah. who just need a chance. Mm -hmm. Right. But how do you? It's hard to sift out the abusers. Exactly. Yeah. So you've got these two populations that doesn't exist in China. Mm. Right. In China, people die on the street. It's like India. People just die on the street. And then like the trash people come and pick them up and get rid of them and do whatever. I'm not saying it happens in Beijing, but it happens all across the countryside. And the vast majority, there's no social welfare program in China. You get old, you live with your kids. Yeah. Right. You get sick your kids pay for you or you die. Which is an interesting part of the problem also because all of the, the current generation, as their parents age, they are responsible for them. And you and I are already approaching an age where we have young children and in the next, I would say 10 years, yeah. we'll be responsible for, for caring probably for, I mean, your mom but is younger, but for caring for my parents. And now, you know, that impacts us yeah. financially, that impacts our career. So, you know, if if you have people who are waiting to get married, right? And then suddenly their parents are aging at the same time. I mean, what kind of what kind of in a, you know, I want to say energy drag, but that's not the right <laughs> word. I mean, resource drain. Resource drain. That's thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, yeah, what kind of resource drain is that on yeah. your individuals? Then they're not going to be able to to work twelve hour days for six days a week, trying to be caregivers for their parents and for their children. It's, it's not possible. Yeah, you know, a big part of if you think about the COVID response in the United mm -hmm. States too, right? The the COVID response in the United States was largely focused on um, what were they called? Susceptible groups. What were they called? There was a term. Oh, at risk. Yeah, at risk communities or at risk individuals. Mm -hmm. So that was the big focus was how do we take care of the diabetics and the elderly and the overweight? How do we take care of these the smokers and the people who are high susceptibility risk? Yeah. That's not how it was everywhere else in the world. Mm. Right. In the rest of the world, they were just kind of like, get your vaccine because it's mandated mm. by the government and you don't have a choice. And at risk groups were kind of just rolled into the larger Everybody population. Yeah. Right. It's we handle things very, very differently here because we have this culture, if you will. I don't know what it is, an imperative. I have no idea where it comes from. But in the United States, we feel like we have to offset Darwin, Darwinian evolution. We have to take mm -hmm. care of the have-nots. We have to protect the people who are at risk, even though they got themselves at risk by having poor eating habits and having poor fitness mm -hmm. habits and being smokers and whatever else. So it became this major challenge. And that just that's not how it is everywhere else. So yes, to be short, I believe Xi Jinping's master plan for China is to let huge chunks of the population die. Mm. Because as the population shrinks and they adopt more of a high-tech, high low-manufacturing, high-innovation kind of foundation, 
he's he's emulating the United States. Mm. It's very clear that he's modeling the future of the Chinese industry base, industrial base, off of the 1960s, 1970s era United States. Mm. And it's working, right? Yeah. They're, what is Huawei? Their own telecommunications company. Right. Right? And it's worldwide. Right. You see that? What is, they have the top selling electric vehicle in the world right now. They beat out Tesla. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying they created it themselves. A lot of that's stolen IP, right. but they're the ones producing it. That means Chinese people are doing the work. Chinese people are bringing in the income. Chinese people are getting paid high-tech wages. Mm-hmm. When they absorb the semiconductor industry out of Taiwan, like you can see that that's the direction they're going. It's a very smart, long-term play for a country that has a long-term history, right? Yeah. a long vision. Yeah. And it's not at all fair or democratic or any of the things that we value. So a long-term vision of curating the population that he wants. Which arguably is the same thing we're doing here in the United States. Only we don't say it the same way, Hmm. right? You're curating a population where people who have opportunities Mm -hmm. have children who get opportunities. Mm. That's how it works in the United States. If you're poor in the United States, you're you're more likely to have a history of poor offspring, right? right? That's why the the rags to riches story is such a powerful story in the United Mm -hmm. States because it's not common. Right. It's rare. Usually it's rags to rags, right. riches to riches. So we have this idea that, oh, you, have, you can just, if you work hard enough, you can just pick yourself up from your bootstraps and you can make it work. And to a certain extent, yes, you can. It's a shit ton of work. Yeah. And there's a lot of luck that goes into it and mm-hmm. connections. Yeah. But essentially, you're stuck mm-hmm. in the rut that you're in unless you buck that rut nonstop. Yeah. I basically just said that China's cultivating its society by letting people die. We're, we're cultivating our society financially, mm-hmm. so I feel maybe I've gone a, maybe I've maybe I've gone a little bit on the deep end here, <laughs> sharing my true feelings because I don't have a filter. <laughs> you have no filter. I used to have a filter. I should have like an uncomfortable meter in front of me. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, It'll correspond with my filter meter. That's like more uncomfortable, higher filter. (laughs) (laughs) This is what you live with. Yeah. I see why you don't go out in public. (laughs) I do. I understand it more and more. That's why when we go to parties, I'm on the other side of the room. (laughs) You're like, babe, come hold my hand. Okay. (laughs) Let me get some snacks first. (laughs) So, So despite the fact that we have these experiences you know, kind of seeing the dirty way that the world works. Mm. We still want to travel the world yeah. and we still want to show our children the world. Yeah. How do you justify those two thoughts going together? I want to understand other cultures. So I would consider myself mostly American culturally. But when I was a kid, I was definitely one of those third culture kids Mm. or I wasn't really American. I wasn't really Japanese. I wasn't really Venezuelan. And I was trying to find where I fit in. But during those years, it just occurred to me that nobody's right. No Mm. culture is perfect. Nobody's right. Nobody has the perfect government. And so I love learning about other cultures and why they tick the way that they tick, why their government's set up the way that it's set up. I love learning about their history and their language and their food because it all ties in um, to the way that they live their lives and the way that they interact with others and the way that 
you know, we can kind of estimate our future as a planet, as a human race is going to go. So that's what I love about traveling is I, I want to understand from more than just the American perspective why things work the way they work. And maybe one day it just seems to me that a, a mix of what already exists will get us closer to the right answers. Hmm. So do you feel like, do you feel like you are getting, do you feel like your travel experience, do you feel like your life experience at CIA and beyond mm -hmm. has helped make you more optimistic about the human race? <laughs> Does the face tell it all on that one? <laughs> no, I'm not more optimistic. <laughs> Because I certainly feel like, I feel like I've become very practical. Yeah. In large part because the world outside of our borders is a very practical world. Mm -hmm. Survival isn't guaranteed. Meals, yeah. meal to meal isn't guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just talking about like your poverty stricken places in Central America or, you know, Central Africa. Mm -hmm. I mean, like there are lots of places in the world where people are just trying to make it or they're making it but they're making it on like two ounces of meat and eight ounces yeah. of rice yeah they're not making it like we have it here on a 16 ounce steak and we throw three quarters of it away right they don't yeah. it's not like that so it's really fascinating to me because as i see the pragmatic the pragmatism the survivalism yeah. the 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 cold matter of fact way that business is handled abroad it makes me feel like the world is much colder and much scarier than what we think it is. So I still have hope and I cling to that. Because <laughs> <laughs> you have a filter. <laughs> because, I, because you don't no, tell people the truth. It's beyond my filter. Um, no, I, I still, I have hope because I know. <laughs> so have you uh, seen the movie Legend? It's an old movie with Tom Cruise, like 1980 something. And at the very end of it, you know, it's the whole movie is this, you know, fight between good and evil. And at the end, the person who's evil uh, says, you know, what is what is light without dark? And it's so powerful to me because I feel like every human being has the capacity for light and for dark. So we have the capacity to be good to each other. We have the capacity to share resources. We have the capacity to not hurt others right but we have the imperative to do the opposite what we, do you mean by that because the survival if you are the nice person if you are the one that shares everything if you are the kind generous like we have the option we have the capacity mm -hmm. if that person is you you will be systematically abused in current day so i think we talked do you about think it was before. better in like the dark ages no no i think we've talked about this before we're like the idea of communism always seemed like such a great idea until i realized like humans have to run it yeah. and then i was like well that's never going to work because humans are humans humans are humans nothing will ever be equal so in theory we have the capacity to uh, practice, you know, equity to make sure that everybody works hard and everybody shares their resources and everybody treats each other kindly. We could do it mm -hmm. if we wanted to. Mm. But the problem is that we don't. We, we feel threatened. We feel insecure. And those feelings lead us to protect our own. Yeah. 
right? What CIA taught us about this, this was, this was like the key to understanding how to turn an asset, how to turn a, a patriot mm -hmm. into a traitor, was just understanding that, what you just said, that, yeah. that they, they have the capacity to be equitable and honest and fair, but mm -hmm. they're going to choose self-preservation. Yeah. Right? How, how do you describe that process? So I think that for somebody not to choose self-preservation, they have to trust. Um, it's like the prisoner's dilemma. You have to trust that somebody else is going to do the right thing too. But none of us have that level of trust. And so in the end, you have to look out for yourself and your family and those who are important to you, right? What is the prisoner's dilemma? Do you remember it? It's... Uh, Oh, it's going to take me a long time to explain it. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, you have two people, they're both prisoners. And um, I believe if they, if one, if one rats the other one out, um, but there's the other one stays silent. Score. Yeah, there's this mathematical score yeah. um, where you are, it, it, it is better for you kind of to rat the other person out right. because you go scot-free and the other person gets jail time. If right. you both stay silent, you both get jail time. If you both rat each other out, uh, I can't remember. That it's one. like the massive cost. It's yeah. the worst scenario. It's the worst scenario. So you're counting that the other person is on the other person being honest, but you're not going to be honest. And that's the prisoner's dilemma. Yeah. And that's the mathematical truth of it, mm. is that mathematically the empirical evidence shows that the predominant outcome is that one person rats out the other person while the other person rats out the first person. They both rat each other out yeah. because they can't count on the other person keeping quiet. Mm -hmm. Even though they do the math in their own head and they're like, oh, if I keep my mouth shut, the longest I'll go to jail is two years. But if I rat, if I, if I tell on the other person, right, mm -hmm. if I... If I rat out my other prisoner, yeah. then I have the chance of going scot-free or staying for seven years. Yeah. And even with all the odds, people still rat each other out. Because there's no, and when it comes to it, there's no honor among thieves. Yeah. Right? So I feel like math, algebra has shown us mm -hmm. people are not going to do the fair and equitable thing. Experience has shown us people are not going to do the fair and equitable thing. History has shown us people are not going to do the fair and equitable thing. And yet we keep wondering, we keep hoping, we keep thinking that someday, somehow, people will do the fair and equitable thing. You have to have hope. But we don't do it ourselves. If, there's, if the possibility exists, you have to have hope. But, but that's what's so interesting is people have hope, but they don't practice it themselves. Yeah. Some of the, some of the, <laughs> oh my gosh, some of the people that I know who preach about fairness and equity and whatever, right? Woke culture, the list goes on, mm -hmm. right? Environmentalism. <laughs> I love how you say it. <laughs> there's so many people who preach these Tell me things. How you feel about it. And then behind closed doors, they're wasteful, mm. they're biased. Like, it's insane. The hypocrisy is insane. It is the prisoner's dilemma in action, hmm. right? We sit here and we blame our politicians for not policing a certain set of social norms that we don't even practice ourselves behind closed doors, right? And then we, we wonder why progress isn't made. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Meanwhile, outside of the United States, the same thing is happening, only nobody's expecting politicians to police it. They're taking yeah. this much more pragmatic approach. I, this is one of the things that I, I love about Europe that people just don't talk about. There's universal health care in Europe, mm. right? If you get sick in Italy, doctors are paid for, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Until, you know where I'm going with this? <laughs> Go ahead. I, I, you know where I'm going <laughs> until you're too sick. Mm. What happens when you're too sick? You don't want to say it. <laughs> you don't want to admit it. They get treated, obviously. It's universal health care. This is your filter. Your filter is, <laughs> the filter is strong in this one. Once you are too sick, a panel of European doctors decide whether or not it's more costly to treat your illness or whether you should just be written off, which is also why health insurance exists in Europe mm. so that you can become terminally ill. And when the public health care sector decides that they're not going to keep funding you because you're a terminal case. You're a waste of tax dollars. You will not have a return on investment. They're going to take the money that would go into treating your terminal illness and they're going to spread it out to treat society. But if you have health insurance, then you can use your own health insurance to treat your terminal illness. How is that actually better than what we have in the United States? How in the world is it better to have the state decide whether you live or die than to have your own choice whether you pay for insurance? This is one of those things that just people don't talk about. And we've seen it firsthand. We've seen it firsthand. And it's frustrating to me. And they just, in Europe, they just accept it. Mm -hmm. And they accept it because their whole life they've been raised to know like, oh, well, if I get cancer, I'm going to die. And I'm going to die relatively quickly because the state won't take care of me. Because once I'm deemed at a high risk, low reward, then my access to healthcare dries up. I think that's a separate conversation as well about about a cultural norms regarding how we view life. I don't disagree because, with you. Because in, I would say in America, so once you enter the hospital system in America, their job is to keep you alive. By law. Yeah. That doesn't Which happen. Which doesn't mean that you should be kept alive. Whoa, the filter comes off. <laughs> Just saying. If you have a... <laughs> Let them die, she says. No, if you... I believe in the fair, and the, the fair and equitable nature of human beings, but some people should not be kept alive. I, You know, I think there's a larger conversation to be had about how people view death. We in modern society are mostly removed from death. Yeah. Most people don't experience society, it yeah, in Western true. society, right? But the fact is that people age, people get sick, people die. And there's a definite, a certain point where, you know, if you have a finite number of resources and you need to treat somebody who is, who will survive, or you can use that to treat somebody who is terminal, mm. right? why put the resources into the person to extend their life that in the it's questionable whether the quality of life is going to be there for them even if you do extend their life right so i just that's a i think that's a completely separate conversation about <laughs> you know how the why there right in america you have insurance you can choose how long you want them to keep you alive all i'm saying is that there's a pragmatism that exists outside of our American borders. Mm. And you just hinted on it, right? Yeah. And you hinted on it because in your worldview, in your experience, you've brought that with you. Mm 
Mm-hmm. That said, if I was terminal, you would keep me alive. <laughs> Maybe? Maybe not? Oh man. I thought that was gonna like like really land. Just, yeah. I thought that was gonna score. And didn't go the way you thought it was gonna go. <laughs> <laughs> so in in the best interest of keeping up with the me falling flat on my face, uh, our question from the spy tribe today uh, is a good one. I think you'll like it. And the question was, was Everyday Spy the first business idea we had and was it always a success? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think, so it wasn't the first business idea we had. Um, I do think that it's been... I mean, in my eyes, it's been a success because it has grown steadily through your efforts, right? Through our efforts. Um, So in my mind, that's a success because it continues to grow and that's really exciting. But it was definitely not the first idea. The first few ideas we... (laughs) (laughs) We we had a business where we sold uh, the Emesis bags, the Trust Emma. Um, So for anybody who doesn't know, Emesis bags are the bags the hospitals give you to throw up into. They're very nice. Um, Our bags. Our bag design was superior, but it was was, still just a barf bag. Yeah, it was a purple barf bag. It was very nice. I think we put $7,000 into that business. Mm -hmm. I think we were $7,000 into that business before. And and I don't know that we ever broke even. I think we made made maybe $700 back. Yeah, that was That was a net loss. But that built a lot of uh, online selling experience. (laughs) And um, it... We uh, we had a couple of booths at some like yep. events, and then that made me realize how difficult having your own booth is selling oh, yeah. something. And I thought it just gave me so much respect for for vendors who mm-hmm. who have booths at events. Um, I started a bounce house business. Yeah, that was that was my favorite one. <laughs> Not at all. That totally didn't work. Oh <laughs> no, my gosh. it didn't. I think, I, well, the good news was we didn't get too deep into that financially. Well, that's because I think that was the only one that I put the kibosh on. Fast. That was very fast. You brought it home. We tried it once. And I told you, there's no way we're working every weekend <laughs> to for, with with parents. And, I mean, and we're high parents insurance ourselves, but risk. High insurance risk. But I, I don't want to work with parents in that capacity yeah. <laughs> like, on my weekends. On their yeah. special days. On their special days, yeah. If stuff goes wrong, no, no, no. <laughs> no thanks. And, and then, then we finally got into a consultancy. Yeah. We opened a consultancy. Yeah, and that went well. And our consultancy worked. And we learned very quickly the value of sharing information. People have their own relationship with information, mm-hmm. which we knew from our time at CIA, mm-hmm. but we had never seen it in a business context. Yeah. So the same, like the exact same presentation to three different people mm-hmm. is interpreted three different ways. And then the three different ways, they all apply it to their situation in their own way as well. And then there's an ownership fact, like an ownership level where they take ownership over their own actions. And then there's a, a an ongoing relationship because they value your information and you feel valued by them it's the exact opposite of a bounce house yeah where like you're a service provider they don't value you and if you screw anything up like you're an idiot and if you if everything goes well for their party mm-hmm. then they then you're just one more thing that went well yeah. it's a completely different kind of beast yeah and everyday spy was born because i you were trying these other businesses and i was like you know people are interested in you like why don't you just do 
something where you answer people's questions or give them information that you know they're, that I hear people asking you for. And you uh, started a lecture series, yeah. an eight-part lecture series, put it together almost on the fly, just with you know ideas that you had already had, yeah. and it was really successful. And it was just it was not for profit either. Yeah, that first lecture series was all yeah. It was all not for profit for a local art studio, mm-hmm. and that's how it took off. Yeah, and then I think from the time that Everyday Spy started, it's been largely successful, like you said. Yeah, we've had, and it's not been because of us; it's been because of all the failures before that. <laughs> we like we learned a yeah. lot, and then when the right people discovered our little lecture series, mm-hmm. we all of a sudden had a network, and we had yeah. uh, kind of a a brain trust that we yeah. could turn to with a uh, with for ideas and for guidance and for and for mentorship. Yeah, I agree. I think that having having a group of people where you can bounce ideas off oh, so of valuable. people who is so valuable that you can, you know, lean on their experience for advice, it's so valuable. And I think that's what I've come to really appreciate about this time with you too. Mm. You've always been the person that I bounce my ideas off of. Yeah. You've always been the person that I go to with my crazy harsh commentary and you take the edge <laughs> off it. Yeah. And then and then you tell me that you wouldn't survive, you wouldn't save me <laughs> if I was terminally ill. Yeah, it's case, case by case basis. <laughs> <laughs> I need more I need more facts here. <laughs> That's fair. I can't argue with that. Thank you very much for joining us again. Please leave your thoughts, leave your comments below. We read them after every conversation. We pull from your comments to decide what we're going to talk about next time, what questions we're going to have. Uh, Clearly on this one, you discovered that Jihee does not necessarily want to rescue me. (laughs) If I am in desperate need, I hope one of you will rescue me if I am in desperate need. Otherwise, I'm going to have to go get an international life insurance policy (laughs) to make sure that no matter where, where I get ill. You can save yourself. I can at least hire somebody to rescue me. But thank you very much for paying attention. Thank you very much for joining us. And we will see you next time. Take care. Bye.